Hashtag SAFM Viewpoint. Thank you very much, Greg Coase. It's five minutes after 9 p.m. We're into the last, well, the second and last hour of uh, The Viewpoint with me, Lizette Khan. I'm standing in for Ashraf Garda on SAFM, leading the conversation. On the big picture, we are in conversation with Dr. Tom G. Palmer. He is the Executive Vice President for International Programs at Atlas Network and is responsible for establishing operating programs in 14 languages and managing programs for a worldwide network of think tanks. Dr. Palmer, please, can you unpack for me what are think tanks? Well, uh, around the world, we work with 493 think tanks. And what they do is to bring together scholars, lawyers, economists, demographers, sociologists, and so on, to study problems in the country, diagnose why they're having this problem, and come up with rational solutions that can be presented to the political authorities and say, here's a menu of improvements that you could make. So who asks the think tank to get together to, you know, kind of uh, make a prognosis of what is actually the issue and then, you know, come up with what needs to be done? Typically, they're formed by academics and journalists. That's most common. They vary from country to country. But they're groups of people who say, we identify some problems in our country and we'd like to diagnose and say, why is this happening? Why is there low job formation? Why is there landlessness? Why is there a problem with water delivery? And on and on and on, and then come up with a solution. So take an example uh, nearby, the Trevace Foundation in Namibia Mm -hmm. has devoted a lot of attention to looking to water delivery issues because that's a very important uh, issue issue that poor people face and rich people don't understand. You can't just turn on the tap and have clean, potable water come out of it. Mm -hmm. You have to carry it a great distance, and even then you might have to boil it before it can be consumed. Consumed. Mm -hmm. And being able to have potable water that you can turn on the tap is an enormous improvement in human well-being. So the question is, why didn't they have that? What was the obstacle? And how could you implement systems that would bring that to people? So that's the sort of work that think tanks do. They might focus on monetary questions in countries that have had hyperinflation, uh, how to restrain the central bank from printing money. Uh, But ultimately, they're advice givers. They say, here's the evidence. Here's our diagnosis of the problem. Here's what could be done. And then is it a case of use it, don't use it? Up to you. Well, that's always the case, in a, certainly in a democracy. <laughs> uh, you, you don't get to be a dictator. No, you don't. That's a violation of the fundamental principle of rational discourse. Mm-hmm. You introduce those into the public conversation. You can advocate for them. You can defend them. You can discuss them. You can open them to queries and public comments and so on. But it is a part of a rational deliberation in a democratic polity. And then you lobby. Uh, most of the think tanks don't lobby per se. Okay. Uh, lobbying has the connotation of delivering a suitcase of cash. <laughs> uh, That's why I use the term. Yes. No, what they do is deliver a book, a volume, a white paper, a study. Okay. Uh, and then be willing to discuss it in public media. And, and when you do, uh, when you go about an exercise like that in diagnosis, um, how long does it does and you know a typical think tank stay together and do they ever sit back and think okay do a a kind of study of what are the things that we suggested have they been implemented and and you know is it was it successful yes or no oh absolutely most definitely you want to go back and see uh, what happened were they implemented uh, what was the consequence what were the changes and so on so looking very simply at uh, 
One of the indices that is used globally is the World Bank's uh, Ease of Doing Business Report. And looking at that, it's a very useful tool for finding problems in a country. So take the case of India, for example. India has undergone a dramatic transformation since 1991 when the license raj, the system of minute controls over all businesses, was partially dismantled. The Center for Civil Society there looked at some of the obstacles to poor people doing business. And here Mm -hmm. was a very big one from 1949 until um, 2017. In order to register a business to be a legal entity so that you could collect bills, you could do all these various things that businesses do, be a legal entity, you had to have a bank account. First, that means half of India can't have a business Business. because Mm -hmm. they're unbanked. Second, in the bank account... You had to have 111.2% of the average GDP or per capita GDP of the previous year. Some bureaucrat worked weeks on that, which meant that poor people couldn't start businesses. So imagine that you had in South Africa or Germany or any place else a requirement that before you can start a business, you have to have more than a year's average income in cash. Wow. The CCS diagnosed this. They looked at other countries. What is the minimum capital requirement in Australia? Zero. What is it in Japan? Zero. What is it in Canada? Zero. What is it in Germany? Zero. Was there a logic behind it? Or was it just somebody sat there and thought up a number? It was something that came about early on when they had a more socialist orientation. And they said, well, we have to be sure when you start a business, you have enough money to do it. That's crazy. And particularly, think about it in the modern era where sometimes you can start a business with nothing but a laptop, a laptop and a phone line. But the idea was we will make sure only qualified businesses enter. But that meant that poor people who have entrepreneurship and ideas and innovation and the willingness to do uh, things that add value, they were legally blocked from starting businesses. So if they had a business, it was illegal. And that meant that they were open to expropriation. The police could come and uh, take their property from them because they weren't a legal business. So that was a successful reform, and it meant that hundreds of thousands of Indians could start their businesses with the dignity of having a legal status. Another simple example, a call from India again, was the street vendors law. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of economic activity on a daily basis takes place on the street, not in big shopping malls. You get your food there, you go and buy clothes there, you get your hair cut there. Everything happens in these street vendors. It was illegal. And so the police come and they steal everything. And they shake you down and beat you. And as one of the economists there said, he said, you go and find the street vendor woman. Quite often, women doing this business. Her business like is like in South Africa. Okay, that's mm-hmm. common. Her business is only as wide as her arms can reach. It's a blanket or a tarp. It never grows. She's been doing this for thirty-two years. It never grew. Why? Because when she sees the police, she has to reach out her arms and fold up that blanket and run away. Mm-hmm. So they introduced first in Rajasthan a proposal to allow property rights for vendors to say, "This is my corner. This is my piece." I have the right to be here and to get a legal document. Then they trained, let's call them street lawyers, who were other vendors who knew the law. They had seminars and workshops with lawyers saying, this is what it means. If the police show up and demand a bribe or a shakedown, they got on their cell phone and motorcycles came from around the city of other vendors saying, this is illegal to take this from them. They have the right to be here. there. It was so successful in Rajasthan 
that then it spread to all of India to allow them the dignity of being having property and saying, I'm a business person and this is mine. And if I do a good job, I can expand. Now, it's very interesting that once again we get back to property, you know, because it's a hot topic in South Africa. But one of the things that is standing out for me in what you're saying is that, first of all, you've got active citizenship um, in, in that your, your citizens are actively involved. But also you need a, a government with will to inform, to enlighten and to educate um, the masses. Um, so I'd like to look at, at South Africa um, as an example and look at the different challenges that we're facing. And, and let's say we're a think tank um, looking at the challenges that we're facing as, as South Africans. One of the things that is commonly, well, not commonly, but one of the things that seems to have become a, a very hot topic in South Africa is, is the moralistic view of capitalism, that capitalism is a, a Western ideal. Uh, it's, it's a Western way of thinking, and it is not something that is inherently African um, and, and something that, you know, we should be taking on. If if you had to listen, if you had to look at that um, and diagnose whether, first of all, it is an, an, an African principle, um, and secondly, if it is something that can work in our context, what would be the place to start? One of my teachers was a professor named George Ayite mm -hmm. from uh, Agana, and he's written extensively as a scholar of African economic and social life. A very powerful book, unfortunately out of print now, called uh, Indigenous African Institutions. Mm -hmm. And he looked at the ways in which markets have structured the life of African people for over 4,000 years that we can document through archaeology and history. So market exchange is by no means foreign to Africans. That's just a silly idea that Africans never exchanged. Of course they do. And if you go to markets, you find, as you pointed out, it's typically African women who are the ones doing the trading and the business. And they understand market principles very, very well. Yes. Supply and demand. Uh, not only supply and demand, <laughs> but, but, but concepts like uh, consumer surplus yes. and so on. They get it uh, quite deeply. He has a new book that just has come out, which is really a profound, deep book called Applied Economics for Africa. And it's actually online at africanliberty.org. The book can be downloaded. It's a very powerful look uh, through an African lens. And that's a very important point because when you write economics, you only talk about the Federal Reserve Bank or the Central Bank of, of England or things like that. It doesn't connect with the experience of African people. So let yes. me give you a simple example from Polly Hill. who was a great development economist, did a lot of work primarily in West Africa. She said, people think bank. And to them, bank means this big granite building, and you go in and there are tellers and so on, and there, there are uh, institutions like banks in England. And then people go and they say, well, we didn't see a bank in the African village, so they don't understand credit. This is not true. Mm -mm. Africans have a long history of credit institutions. So in West Africa, they have Sisulu. They have a lot of tantine systems, collective ownership or collective saving, I should say. And as Professor Aide put it, it's a, something I remember from 30 years ago. It stuck in my mind. He said, these systems are called by uh, Marxists and anthropologists primitive communist accumulation. In America, they call them savings Same and loan, loan associations. associations. <laughs> he said they're simply the same. But the fact that they don't have a granite building, uh, people say, oh, well, that's not a bank. Of course it's a bank. It's a savings and loan association, no different from what you would find in Canada or any other country. So I, I don't think it's true. It is not consistent with the available evidence uh, of uh, African life. It's looking at it from the wrong lens, thinking a bank 
has a certain kind of a building. Rather than looking at the exchange that people are doing in terms of generating capital and cooperation, uh, from a South African and from an African perspective, and I'm talking about and, and, and let me okay, let me speak for my generation. I can't speak for ten or twenty or thirty years, you know, generation my to previous to me. Um, when we do think bank, we think of a, a Western way of doing business. We think of a motivation of how you will be graded as a client, how you will be seen. Uh, think something as, sim- as, as simple as, you know, when we do look at the history of this country, there is evidence that we had banks who were loading the interest rates on, on black homeowners because they thought they were a higher risk. Um, so from that perspective and looking at then at a capitalist system, uh, would you say that that as a from a from a from an African perspective, there are there are institutions that we need to change to decolonize, to use the work word that's you know the word the, the kids are using today to decolonize the way we actually think of those institutions rather than the institutions themselves. I think that's a that's a smart way of putting a decolonization of the mind to get the colonial mentality out of the mind that somehow. These institutions were all imported, and they were there was just a blank slate before. There was an African history, an African context. I'll give you a very simple example. So another thing that opened my mind uh, some years ago, because I'm always learning more about Africa. It's such a huge continent with so many rich cultures and languages and, and civilizations on this continent. Uh, I was with a, a, a Nigerian scholar, Adedeo Thomas, and mm-hmm. he was discussing something, and he said something that was very striking to me because someone coming from outside of Africa wouldn't have understood. He was talking about Mugabe. He said if Mugabe had wanted to help Zimbabwe, he could have become a king instead of president. Now, to a foreign ears, that sounds very strange. What is he talking about? Kings are all powerful. But in the African context, kings were traditionally peacemakers in the community, and they only ruled with the consent of the general community. They resolved disputes over marriage and land and grazing and cattle and all sorts of things of that sort. They were not dictators. They had only the authority that the community gave to them. So that was a decolonization of the concept of political authority and seeing it from an African lens. And to me, this was really uh, mind-opening, not just eye-opening, but it opened my mind to see African institutions in a different way. And I'm still learning about that. We have got to take a break quickly, but I'd like to invite callers to give us a call. We're talking about looking at, at institutions, well, not just institutions, but we're looking at ways of doing business like capitalism, socialism, uh, you know, all those communism. Looking at South Africa and the South African context, what is the best way that we can be dealing with a technical recession? We're dealing with high employ- unemployment rates, uh, unemployment rates. We're looking at issues of, of land and ownership, food security, so much uh, greed, corruption, so many things, the challenges that we're looking at uh, as a country, what is the best way to actually address it? Is it a capitalist system? Do you see that as just a Western ideology? Is it a communism, which is, which in your view, uh, as a listener, and I'm just you know postulating here, might be more of an Ubuntu system? What exactly, or a socialist system? What do you think is the best way for South Africa to address some of the issues that we are looking at? Uh, give us a call, 0891-104-207, 0891-104-207. You can also SMS us, 40938, 40938. SMSs are charged at 150, and you can ask your questions to Dr. Palmer. Um, he is, I love this word, he is um, basically one of those people who is the chair for advancing liberty. 
I want to still unpack what that means, but we'll, we'll chat to him about that just after this break. In our SAFM documentary, this Sunday, the 25th of November. Women in jazz and in music generally have been traditionally relegated to specific roles. Saxophone or bass or drums. Gosh, not suitable for a young lady. I sit every day practicing for five hours without fail because that's my duty. Women in Jazz, part one. Are you the vocalist? Where's the pianist? I'm sure it's better than it was back in the day, but I don't think it's unique to jazz. The gender, the race. The greatest musicians, I think, saw past all of those. All the male musicians were described as playing their instruments. Poor Romy was lumbered with making love to her bass. This Sunday, just after the 8 o'clock news, Women in Jazz. Part one. Many times people have asked me, oh, are you the vocalist? Or I'm sitting at the piano, well, where's the pianist? But usually after I play, things are clear. So. <laughs> at SAFM Radio and at Leslie underscore Khan on Twitter. Um, it's just gone 22 minutes after 9 o'clock, which means that we have just under 40 minutes to, to chat about um, the state of the country, looking at some of the issues that we're facing and what are some of the pol- political ideologies that we sh- that maybe we can look at. You know, I, I think that we're looking at uh, capitalism seems to be one of those things I, I, I love. You know, I spoke to, to quite a few um, people and, and one, one of the things that they often say is that, you know, we were looking with free for freedom and justice and, and we, we landed up with democracy and capitalism. And, and you know, there's, there's often a view that those two don't really equate with each other, that you can't look at justice and look at a capitalist system. Um, would you say that that, that, that is something that I, I don't want to say is relevant or something, but looking at the history as that we have a country where we've had democracy, we've had capitalism, and we look at the rampant amount of greed um, and state capture and all the rest of those things that you would understand why people feel that capitalism and justice do not go hand in hand. Well, let's get some terminological questions sorted out because these are disputed terms. What is capitalism? What is socialism? And so on. So first of capitalism was a negative term. The inventor of it was Karl Marx Karl and Marx. then Werner Zombart, mm-hmm. who was a very famous German Marxist who later became an anti-Semite and racist. And he ta- wrote the book Der Moderne Kapitalismus. Uh, so it was a negative term. The people who defended liberalism used the word liberalism or freedom or something of that sort. South Africa under apartheid was essentially a war on the market by excluding people. First, it starts out by stealing from people. The mm-hmm. Native Land Act of 1913 was one of the greatest acts of theft of the 20th century. It was just stealing. They forbade people from engaging in voluntary exchange. It said that an indigenous person could not buy or sell. Or sell. It was So how is that compatible with the market? That's the very beginning of the institutionalization of the assault on the market by denying people the right to buy and sell. And then, of course, group reservation and so on, exclusion from the bulk of the valuable land in the country. <clears throat> the second thing was it was highly statist. It was run by one particular tribe as they perceived it for the benefit of their elite mm-hmm. in the exclusion of others. So that came with job reservation acts. You can't hire people. Uh, of the uh, the wrong race, the wrong racial group, and past laws, and all of the others, 
the real horror of the history of this country is a very shocking set of crimes. Mm-hmm. All of these were assaults on not only human dignity and freedom, but very importantly on the freedom to exchange, the freedom to interact, the freedom to buy and sell, the freedom to hire or work uh, as you want it. So uh, to identify that with capitalism, if by capitalism you mean free exchange, is, is absurd. It was all an assault on freedom of exchange. If you want to insist on calling that capitalism, you say, okay, but that means capitalism is the opposite of the free market Mm -hmm. in that context. The other element is that we see systems that are nominally private ownership, so firms are privately owned, but cronyism means the state offers favors to its buddies. Yes. That's pretty common around the world, uh, that if you are the cousin of of the prime minister or the president or the son or the daughter or what have you, you get all sorts of favors. But what is the question, what is active there? Is it the freedom of exchange that leads to that, or is it political power? Okay. I think it's pretty clear it's political power. And Mm -hmm. the reason is we find crony socialism and crony capitalism. Mm -hmm. Under socialism, there's the same cronyism. If you're a party member and connected to the boss and in the right faction, then you get everything. You get the fancy car, you get the the dacha, the, the summer house, All of those sorts of things. And similarly, in a politicized economic system that has nominally private ownership, if the president or the prime minister has the authority to allocate monopolies, privileges, or what are called in economic terms, rents, Rents. Mm -hmm. they will do that. So you get cronyism under both systems. Now, what is the common denominator between the two, the common factor? And that is political Political power. power. Mm -hmm. So it basically comes down to political power, not necessarily the system that is in place. From an economic perspective. Yes, I think that's right. If, you, if people have power, typically they will use it to benefit themselves. That's why constitutionalism is important because it ties the hands of people with power. That is, is really the function of the rule of law, to help people to facilitate mutually uh, advantageous exchanges at fairly low cost. This, by the way, is another area of massive state failure around the world. In many countries, the legal system is not available to the poor. It's only for the rich. Yeah. If government has a function, it should be to deliver legal services to everyone on an equal and equitable basis. So not only the rich have access to the legal system, but everybody should be able to have access. But when you have that kind of power, and it's unconstrained by separation of powers or constitutional limitations or judicial review or other institutions that have emerged to do this, people will use it to enrich themselves and their friends. Now, if we look at South Africa, and I want to get back to our example, one of the things, and looking at our economic landscape, one of the things that have been touted by by individuals is that we should look at nationalization of various sectors, sectors. so looking at banks, um, looking at mines, um, because these are, are, you know, well, ownership is, is, is an issue, um, and also it's a, it's a means of production, you know, so... When the means of production are in the hands of the people, the thinking is that you know there will be more economic prosperity for the people. Um, is that a viable option for South Africa, or does that in and of itself have pitfalls that we're not looking at? That's for South Africans to decide fundamentally, but I think in doing so, they should be aware of a following a, a set of truths that are found in every country. There's something in political science called the Iron Law of Oligarchy. 
And that is to say, when you have groups, they will tend to be dominated by the elites, elites. people who are more articulate, more forceful, more corrupt, more violent, whatever it is, the currency that gets them to the top, they will be the ones who dominate it. And they will use that system for their own purposes. If you fear that, don't empower elites <laughs> in that way. And systematically, that's what happens every place. Now, let me give another simple example. When you nationalize, that word nation is in there. Yes. But it doesn't belong to the nation. It belongs to the people who exercise effective control over it. Those are the politicians and those that they favor or uh, uh, appoint to positions. The nation never comes together and decides how many peanuts are going to be grown or how many potato chips or how many automobiles. This doesn't happen. Uh, it's, a sign, it's kind of a fantasy that there's some big national consensus on how many of everything should be produced or what interest rate should be or whatever, yes. who should get loans. When you nationalize a bank, for example, it means it's now politically accountable. And you can be sure that people who are politically favored will get loans at lower interest rates than people who are not. And if it's a state bank, they don't have to look to a profit and loss statement. Mm -hmm. They can run up losses at the expense of the general public almost indefinitely. If it's a private bank, and they have to be accountable to shareholders, and they're giving out loans to people who are not qualified or at cheap discounted interest rates, they'll lose money. That can be held accountable. Someone, there's someone who says, hey, you're misallocating this capital. But when they're only accountable to the president and the president can draw on the taxpayers to, as they, the term they use is, recapitalize the banks once they have mismanaged themselves, well, there's no accountability left. Um, just looking at some of the SMSs that are coming in, um, uh, I don't know who this one is from. It says, unfortunately, these things are, are dictated to developing countries. We have bought into the capitalist system. Um, markets dictate, therefore. Um, our salvation is to bring or uh, give our people human dignity by giving quality education. Uh, give people freedom to choose the system they can benefit from um, and choose. Uh, uh, th there is no right. There is no straight answer. Um, would you say that education is the magic pull for all, for all the ills? Unfortunately, no. I'd like to say <laughs> yes, because I think education is a valuable thing. But it's normally the result of becoming wealthier. People invest more in education. It's not generally the case that more education automatically makes you wealthy. So we can look at a number of countries that have a large percentage of college graduates, but no jobs. Mm-hmm. What you want is an economy that will allow people to create value. And systematically over time, as people become wealthier, because they create value, they will invest more in the education, education of system. themselves mm -hmm. and their children. So education is less of an input than an output of an economic system. And you can find this systematically around the world, that education t tends to lag rather than precede wealth creation. And it's perfectly normal, of course, that people now that they're wealthier want to educate their children better. Um, just finally, looking at one of the, the statements that, that we made, that, uh, that SMS made, is that, you know, as a developing country, we don't really have that much choice. The markets dictate and, um, you know, looking at the more developed countries, it kind of dictates which system we will follow. Uh, you have IMF, you have all these sort of things that you need to look at, ratings, agencies. Um, so is that a factor or, or would you say that, a, that as a country that is developing, as a third world country, you, we still have the opportunity to, to make those systems malleable? 
South Africans can do what they want. It's just that there's normally consequences for it. The question is they're willing to bear those consequences. So let's take the case in Latin America. Venezuela had a military officer who led a coup Mm -hmm. in 1992, Hugo Chavez. Yes. He was not successful in overturning the democratic order. He was, after he was released from president, he ran for president on a populist campaign, and he did win in 1998. Then he set about destroying the democracy there. They no longer have anything you could remotely call democratic in Venezuela, and utterly destroying the economy. No one could dictate to them what was going to happen. This was a decision made in Venezuela. And we can look at the consequences. 2001, he issued a decree, being given a rubber stamp by the national legislature, for expropriation of property without compensation. This is quite a relevant issue for for South Africans to mm-hmm. just, as educated people, look at how this has worked elsewhere. It said that we're going to do it according to the rule of law. All you have to do is show that you have unbroken title to 1848. Most Venezuelans could not do that. Mm. You could say, well, I have it until 1870 or 50 or no, 1848. And if not, it could be expropriated. <clears throat> what was the consequence? Value of land went down because there's no more security. Agricultural production fell. No one invested in the land. The ruling regime, and here's where the political science element comes in, had to find a scapegoat. It can't be them. Mm. They can't be responsible. It was the wicked fertilizer companies were not delivering enough fertilizer. So they were expropriated, and they created a a conglomerate state fertilizer monopoly. They nationalized it, and it doesn't produce fertilizer, by the way. And this was just a snowball. Mm -hmm. Now, Venezuela, because of decisions made in Venezuela, these were not dictated from abroad, having gone from the wealthiest country in Latin America, the highest per capita income, and a democracy— is now an impoverished dictatorship. In 2017, the average adult Venezuelan lost 11 kilos of weight. They call it the Venezuelan diet. Wow. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees announced this month, one week ago, they had tabulated there are now over 3 million involuntary refugees and migrants who have left the country for Brazil, Colombia, Panama, Peru, Ecuador, they're arriving at the Peruvian border between ten and 20,000 a day as we speak. That's 10% of the population has already left, and they're still pouring out because they're hungry. No one dictated this from external. That was an internal political process. And I think it's wise for people to watch it and say, hmm, I don't think even President Chavez anticipated or intended this outcome. But now, in hindsight, we can look at it and see how it happened. Yeah. And I think there are lessons there for everybody. Food for thought. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Palmer. Really enjoyed the time together. Uh, and I have so many other questions that we just did not get to. Well, we can talk later. It's been <laughs> but, my great pleasure. Thank you. But we definitely you. need to, to have a chat uh, about this. And, and thank you very much for your insights. Uh, we're going to be carrying on our conversation. We're going to be chatting to uh, Laura Thomas-Gilks, who is the Head of International Digital Brand Communications um, at Salt and Candy, after the break.